from Kirkco Media. Doctor, doctor, you gotta help me see what's going on. Doctor, doctor. It's still here. Numbers are still climbing. Who would have predicted that the health and medical community would be at odds with the politicians on how we handle the climb out of this pandemic? I know you think you've heard enough about this COVID virus, but new developments are worth understanding, and each of our actions and personal decisions will affect our families, our friends, and our communities. In this episode, you'll hear some new COVID-19 facts that are worth your time. It's stuff you need to know. This is medicine. We're still practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. Of course, first, my friend and co-host, Dr. Stephen Tabak. He's a quadruple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care. And he's on the front lines of the COVID battle out in California, for which we are eternally grateful. Steve, how you doing? Thanks for remotely tuning in. Hey, Bill. Good to see you. And our very special guest, Dr. Kristen Moffitt. She's an associate physician in the Pediatric Infectious Disease Division at Boston Children's Hospital. And she's a multiple award-winning physician and professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Christy is also affiliated with Brigham and Women's Hospital. She's certified in general pediatrics and infectious diseases by the American Board of Pediatrics. And Dr. Moffitt, we'd like to thank you for breaking away and joining us today. All right, thanks for having me. Tell me, how has Boston Children's focus changed during this virus? Boston Children's, like every hospital in Boston, March and early April were all frenzied months as we were preparing, like hospitals, I'm sure, all around the world for what we were anticipating to be a surge in COVID-infected patients. It became fairly clear relatively early in the pandemic with data coming out of China that children did not seem to be suffering the same severity from this infection as older individuals and adults did. We were not completely sure whether or not that data would hold true as the virus swept across the world. Luckily, that has actually held true, but that should not be taken at all to mean that children don't get sick from this. Some children do get sick from this. Some do require hospitalization. In some studies, up to a third of children who require hospitalization require ICU-level care. So Boston Children's also was in a unique position in Boston. As you know, Boston has an abundance of hospitals for people to choose from, excellent hospitals, all of them. But Boston Children's is the only freestanding children's hospital. There are several other children's hospitals in Boston, but they all have their physical spaces, their units, their hospital beds contained within larger hospital systems that treat adults. So a decision was made within the city for Boston Children's to be able to take care of all pediatric patients in Boston who required hospitalization so that the pediatric beds in those other hospitals that were within adult hospitals could be committed to caring for adults with COVID. Seems like a good plan. Well, even you just mentioned that children are substantially less susceptible to this virus than older people are at risk. Of the children who do get seriously affected by this virus, apparently more than 75% of the fatalities in children related to this virus are those of minorities. Can you explain why that's happening? Yeah, that is very true. The disproportionate effect that this infection has had on Black and Latina individuals that has been seen in adults is playing out very much in children as well. 
And that's true both of acute COVID infections. And then, as you may know, we were all surprised in the pediatric realm to start to understand this other entity called MISC, or multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, that seems to be overwhelming inflammation that occurs in children largely two to four weeks after a COVID infection. So both acute COVID and MISC are impacting minority populations in pediatrics substantially. So why is that? The most likely explanation is that children are most likely exposed in their households and in their communities. And those are exactly the households and the communities in which the adults are suffering the most serious consequences and highest incidence of COVID-19 infection. So I think that children really very much are reflective of that. It's an interesting statistic when you look at it. I know from the adult side, we certainly see in that population, there's a lot of multifamily housing, multiple families living under one roof. And that sort of social crowding seems to have an impact. But also uh, those people who are not financially immune, so to speak, from the virus and that they must go to work every day to feed their family. You can't be you know, a day laborer and do it via Zoom. You actually need to show up. And, and anytime there is that expectation, there's not going to be a lot of social distancing at the workplace. And so we, we think that lower socioeconomic in general would be forced to continue their, their work and their jobs in spite of the fact that the risks uh, remain the same. And the statistic is not percentages of people who get the virus. It is a death toll of people who have the virus. So is it biological that affects them differently or lifestyle or food or? Yeah, I think those are all definitely hypotheses that still frankly require investigation. And I think that there may even be a multifactorial explanation for it. One that is along the lines of what Stephen was mentioning is a difference in access to healthcare for these affected populations as well. It certainly is possible that there may be a biological explanation. Our hospital, in coalition with over 70 other hospitals, are studying the genetics of children who are impacted by either severe COVID infection or by MISC. But there isn't anything clearly being borne out yet in terms of solid genetic reasons that make the immune response to these affected populations different necessarily. There's still some work to be done there. But as you suggested too, Bill, the underlying potential complicating factors that might be called comorbidities in some are also higher in these populations and make them at higher risk and more susceptible to more severe sequelae of this infection. So this isn't new that we need to find thousands of healthy people who are willing to take part in a trial for a vaccine. You're not vaccinating the people who are already sick, right? So there must be a history of being able to find people who are willing to participate in such a thing. How do they go about finding these people? It's varied historically in terms of what the vaccine was being designed to prevent, in terms of how dire the infection was and how much a population was affected by a given infection. But historically, some infections that, especially the ones that were devastating to families and to children, most families were very eager to participate in vaccine trials and in bringing those vaccines into children, whether there was a monetary compensation that was offered or not. So I think that there will be families that are eager to be part of these trials. I was surprised in our own front, we're running a large trial at Boston Children's 
trying to enroll children who've had COVID-19. And we're asking these families to bring their children back into our hospital for blood draws that they don't otherwise need. And I really, having done a number of clinical trials that involved research-only blood draws, was not sure that this was going to be an easy sell for families. But I've been very surprised by how eager families are to contribute to the advancement of our knowledge of this infection and the response of families to enroll in study has been really amazing. What do you think the penetration of this anti-vaccine sentiment is out there? What percentage of the families that you are in contact with do you feel are anti-vaccine? Once we have a vaccine, what percentage of the population will accept it or looking at it the other way will not accept it? Yeah, so I think it, it may vary a little bit in terms of how that's unique to a COVID vaccine and how that applies to a sort of anti-vaccine population in general. I've been reading that polls most recently about COVID vaccine uptake are suggesting that it's only about 60% of the population that sound like they are willing to go forward with vaccination. And that's even if one, frankly, is determined to be safe and effective in some of these larger trials, which is concerning. So I think it's really going to depend on how the data from these trials look for the public to be able to make informed decisions about that. What do you think about the theory that New York and, and Massachusetts, because of housing being a little bit more crowded, that there's a higher viral load that lends itself to a higher mortality, as opposed to maybe a, a lighter viral load, more of an outdoor lighter load causing a, a less severe disease? Yeah, that, that may be part of it. I think the other factor that sort of supports that, Stephen, is that the communities in Massachusetts that were hit the hardest when we were surging tended to be communities that were exactly those that you described, dense housing, multi-generational homes. So I think that is certainly a likely player in the fatality rate and in the severity rate that you just have this higher concentration of individuals, a higher concentration potentially of virus. And when a person is getting infected with a higher viral burden, they will have a more severe infection. That being said, are you going to restaurants? And if so, only outdoor restaurants? I'm assuming that there are none that are open or that maybe minimal that are open for indoor seating. What has been your personal policy? Yeah, Massachusetts has opened indoor seating at limited capacity with lots of risk mitigation practices in place. That being said, I am still only doing outdoor seating. Yeah, me too. I think the study that came out that showed it was like a two and a half higher likelihood for individuals to have dined in in the 14 days before their COVID infection. Exactly. So we're going to take a very quick break and we'll be back with Dr. Kristen Moffat. And when we come back, we're going to talk to her a little bit about the concept of surfaces and whether they're a danger. We'll be right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of and so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com slash a moment of your time. 
So we're back to, with Dr. Kristen Moffat and Dr. Stephen Tabak. And Christy, wonder if you would tell us whether I should still be alcohol wiping down all my groceries and the mail that's dropped off. And uh, when this first happened, I was pretty relentless. And if someone approached our front door, I pretty much sprayed them down with alcohol. Which has been your lifelong policy anyway, as I... <laughs> uh, well, it, it has. It has. This thing has worked its way into a germaphobe's heart. But I have to ask you, is the concept of surface transmission no longer a concern? Is it just breathing in a droplet? Where do we stand on that? Yeah, I I wouldn't say it's zero concern, but I think it has become abundantly clear that the overwhelming majority of transmission events are occurring through the air. It is still conceivable that if somebody who was had a high viral burden, so the day of symptom onset, for example, and they had just sneezed on a doorknob, and you went and touched that doorknob within minutes afterwards, and then went and touched your nose, your mouth, your eyes, you could infect yourself that way. But I think short of those kinds of extreme circumstances, transmission through contaminated surfaces does seem less likely. I think, you know, decontaminating the mail, not sure that's necessarily needed. Although I, I will recant the story of my, my cousin, who's an economics professor in, in New York. When COVID first broke out there, he was at the grocery store and witnessed somebody sneezing into their hands and then picked up an apple looked at the apple and put it back in the pile of apples. And he was calling me and saying, should I eat fruit again or not? I think washing our fruit, anything that's not already in a package, you know, any, any fruit where you're, where you're eating the skin, I think washing it makes sense. But I would have said that pre-COVID. So. <laughs> so let's go back to our kids. I'm sure we have lots of listeners who have kids that are going to school now because it seems like a lot of our country has invited the very young kids, like preschool kids, to come in and experience school in these small pods, like seven other students or what have you, where some of the older kids are now dealing with the online thing, but you can't do that with the very youngest kids. So with the very young kids, what is your advice to parents for how they explain what's going on to their kids and tell them, Yes, you have to wear pants and you also have to wear a mask. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a real challenge, I think, for parents to keep the conversations age appropriate. And what that means really is to have conversations with them that they can understand that aren't scary to them. And it's possible to do that. And at the same time, make them feel empowered, like they're contributing to being a part of the solution for this. So Framing things in terms of these are the things we have to do to keep our friends safe, to keep our teachers safe, and so that your family stays safe and so that you stay safe. Framing it in terms of these are the things that doctors are doing to keep themselves safe when they're taking care of patients. And so you can do this too and be just like a doctor and helping someone to keep other people from getting sick. Any techniques for the post-adolescents and beyond, even the 18 to, to 25 set that seem to be, take the perspective that it really is not going to affect me and this is my time to enjoy my life and I'm going to take my chances without really taking into account the impact that maybe they're having on other people. I think then the message needs to change and the message then needs to hit the motivation. That age group is motivated. They are just inherently wired to want to be with their peers, to want to congregate, to want to socialize. They want to be able to go to their sports. They want to be able to go to whatever it is they do for extracurricular activities, their theater group. They want to be in classrooms and on campuses with their peers. So the message there is, 
if you can't do these things collectively to keep transmission under control, none of those things are going to be available to you. Mm-hmm. Campuses are going to close. Classrooms are going to close. Basketball teams aren't going to be able to play. So getting at the motivation and really trying to target the messaging there is going to be more impactful with that age group. So speaking of that age group, I understand that there's a, a terrible vaping problem. And I understand that while vaping is never recommended under any circumstances, apparently it's causing teens and young adults additional risks of contracting COVID. Why would that be? Yeah, I think that there are probably changes that happen in the cells that line the respiratory tract from chronic exposure to some of the substances that people are vaping. It may not even be necessarily what they're intending to vape. It may be an additive that they don't even know is there that can be having a serious impact on the cells that line their airway in terms of the effectiveness of their response to this virus. Yeah, we certainly see that in, in our adult pulmonary population, but I've, I've seen it in, you know, in adolescence and I've heard of it. This is not just a, a high school, college problem, but this is uh, middle school and even grammar school. Dr. Steve, does vaping in general reduce your immunity? It increases your risk of pulmonary infections because your, your main protective source is going to be the respiratory epithelium. This we call ciliated epithelium, which actually has these little finger-like projections that beat out and beat upward any particulate matter that come into your respiratory tree. And if you are going to do damage to that primary mechanism, yeah, it will lend itself to having ongoing and, and worsening lung injury. It lends itself to increased respiratory infections. You want to avoid vaping at all costs. Dr. Moffitt, can I just ask you, when you picture someone smoking and they exhale the smoke, is that kind of a good representation of what these droplets could be doing when someone is simply, well, blowing out in that kind of a form in your space? Yeah, I think that the active exhalation from vaping or smoking is probably a bit more forceful than our just sort of sitting here inhaling and exhaling. And if you want to see really amazing pictures of droplets, respiratory droplets, there are some researchers in fluid dynamics that have taken these like unbelievably slowed down time-lapse photographs of sneezes, for example, if you haven't seen them, that are enough to make you absolutely want to just live in a bubble. (laughs) So Dr. Moffat, I wonder if you could tell me, do you expect there to be a different type of COVID season this fall in Massachusetts compared to California and Florida from a weather standpoint? I think that the impact of the weather on this virus does not seem to be very impressive. I mean, if you look at the parts of our country that were surging when it was warm and we were in better control in places where it was cooler, I think it's really hard to say. There may be a modest impact in terms of the virus actually having specific viral characteristics that make it maybe more likely to cause infections in the cold weather. But I think it's going to be more social determinants of cold weather that are going to put those parts of the country where we get cold weather at higher risk. We're starting to hear more and more about the viral load and how if somebody sneezes in your face and you get a large viral load, you might get a bad case of the disease. On the other hand, this virus is very small, and I know there's no such thing as just one or two, but let's say you got one or two viral cells Are you still going to build up an antibody to the disease if you get a very small load? 
That's a great question. It's actively being studied because it's such an important question. And I think it's still maybe a little too early to say for sure, but there are data already that suggests that if you had a relatively mild infection, you don't mount at least the same antibody response that those with more severe infection do. So those who get very sick from this infection seem to have what's called neutralizing antibody, which is really the most important type of antibody to measure. You want to know how capable antibody detectable in a person's blood after they've had this infection, how capable it is of actually neutralizing this virus in a Petri dish. And it does seem that those who had mild or asymptomatic infection have much lower levels of that neutralizing antibody in their blood and levels that don't seem to last as long. Okay. Well, we're going to take another quick break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Moffitt. And we're going to talk about long haulers, the folks that get this virus, and it appears that they have it for a very, very long term. We'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Well, we're back with Dr. Moffitt and Dr. Stephen Tabak, and there's this kind of new term being thrown around, long haulers people who have suffered from COVID-19 and do so chronically for long periods of time. Was there a reason why some have such long-standing symptoms? And even when they're healthier than others who should, by all rights, be more at risk, you have these long haulers who can't seem to get rid of the virus. Why is that? I think from the adult side, what we see, and it's, it's variable because there are some people who seem to smolder along and get better. And then we do see that period of time of people smoldering along, and then they hit a critical time in day seven to day nine, where it seems like they completely decompensate and they wind up going to our ICU and on many times on ventilators. It's rare that we find somebody who actually gets better, almost completely resolved, and then decompensates. It's not been my experience. If you're smoldering, you're on low-level oxygen, and you seem to be holding your own, they can deteriorate in that magic window of seven to nine days. One can surmise that your body is doing its best to keep the virus at bay because you do mount a response, and maybe initially you can keep the virus at bay. And then with any war, the virus starts mounting a stronger and stronger response and then just overwhelms your ability to completely defend against it. And now you're feeling the brunt of it getting the better of you, at least at that time. Christy, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that there's been a lot of debate in the pediatric world because we were so surprised by this MISC entity, this multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, that seems pretty clearly to occur about two to four weeks after an acute COVID infection. And frankly, in the majority of children who've experienced MISC, their acute infection was very mild and sometimes even asymptomatic. So we are often relying to figure out whether or not a patient actually is experiencing MISC. They present with symptoms of fever and overwhelming inflammation. So they're hyper-inflamed and that inflammation is affecting their body in different ways. 
But there are a number of other entities unrelated to COVID that can look like that as well. So we're relying on whether or not they still have a positive PCR for COVID in their upper airway or whether or not they've mounted an antibody response yet to COVID. What is the age range where that tends to hit? Yeah, so the, the median age is about 10 to 11, but it is being seen in some older teenagers and young adults, and it is being seen in some even down into infancy. Christy, one of the things that we're apparently supposed to avoid if our kids get COVID is giving them aspirin. Why is that? So aspirin in the setting of specific infections in general, a handful of viral infections in general in children has been associated with a very, very serious condition called Rye syndrome that can severely impact a lot of your vital organs. So aspirin in general is not recommended in children. If children are experiencing fever from a possible infection or discomfort otherwise, then either ibuprofen or acetaminophen products would be recommended. And I also understand for adults, ibuprofen is not a good idea as compared to other types of anti-inflammatories. So initially it was off the list. Now that I don't believe that there's any warning against non-steroidals in the adult population. We tend to use Tylenol for fever abatement and for pain control just because it's easier on the kidneys and it's easier on the stomach, provided you're not getting to the point where you're getting to liver toxicity. But it's much easier to damage your kidneys with a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory like ibuprofen than it is to hurt the liver with Tylenol acetaminophen. Thoughts about that on the pediatric side? In general, in pediatrics, for fever, for pain, ibuprofen, if you're over the age of six months, ibuprofen is typically recommended. It just tends to be very effective, particularly for fever reduction. And as long as it's dosed correctly, and not given in too high a dose or given too frequently. Children in particular tend to tolerate it very well, but acetaminophen products would certainly be an option too. So I wonder if we could take a little detour here and talk to you about reinfection and what we know. Because one would think this has now been going on since March. We're now in October. I wonder if you could tell us if we know anything more about whether people are getting this virus for a second time. There was a lot of alarm, I think, with the first clearly documented case of reinfection. So the, the trick to documenting reinfection is that you really can't rely on just continued positive PCR testing because some people stay positive for a very long time from their primary infection. So the first documented case of reinfection occurred in an individual in Asia who was infected, if I recall, initially in April, March or April returned from traveling sometime in the last month or so and only had a repeat COVID test as a travel screen for return from having been elsewhere and tested positive but was asymptomatic. But they actually were able to sequence the virus from the first test compared to the second test to confirm that it was a different viral sequence and therefore this was indeed reinfection. Is the virus mutating that much at this point? It's not that the virus is mutating that much, but there were detectable enough differences to ascertain that it was two different viral infections, basically. And then the big question is, was the, the primary infection, did that confer immunity on the second? Because you can reinfect me all day long if I don't have symptoms. I'm probably not going to be upset about that. 
So I think with with that first case report, I think that scientists were relieved actually and said, uh, well, of course he was asymptomatic with the second infection. And that just proves what we would suspect, which is that the first infection confers immunity against getting very sick from this if you see it again. But of course, not too long after that, there was the second case report of reinfection in which, again, because of two different viral sequences, they were able to confirm it was indeed reinfection and the individual actually was sick with the second infection. So (laughs) everyone who maybe took a a little bit of reassurance from the first case report that was quickly done away with with the second case report. But I think in general reinfections, it's not surprising now that we have millions and millions and millions of cases that we will see reinfections. From seasonal coronavirus experience, we know that even if you get some immunity from seasonal coronavirus, its longevity is not such that, you know, reinfection is an impossibility. But encouraging that it seems to be very low rates, because I I know I have not seen any patients that came in, at least to the hospital, that had to be readmitted with what seemed to be a new infection. So, Christy, if your best friend comes down with COVID and isn't bad enough yet to check themselves into the hospital, but this is your best friend, and now we have all these treatments like remdesivir and otherwise steroids and, and what have you, do you recommend to your best friend that they begin a regimen to try to minimize the virus, or do you wait for it to get so bad that they have to go to the hospital? Yeah, at this point, there's really nothing that has solid evidence to suggest that taking it when you're only mildly ill is going to really have an impact on your outcome. So at this point, my recommendation would still be if you're feeling crummy, but you're still stable enough to be at home, that continued what's referred to as supportive care, which is hydration, fever control, making yourself comfortable would be my recommended advice for that individual. But if they're starting to feel shortness of breath, chest pain, any of the myriad of symptoms should prompt a very, very urgent evaluation. Yeah, but any patient that would come to the adult floor who was not requiring oxygen or had low mediator levels, low ferritin, low CRP, things that we, for better or worse, we are monitoring, we would be sending those patients home. Dr. Moffitt, I sat around with family the other day and we were drinking some wine and I said, you know, I, I can't taste this wine. And of course, everybody laughs and said, aha. Why is it that supposedly one of the symptoms of having COVID is loss of taste? I have been reading headlines about some clear impacts of the virus directly on your olfactory cells in particular, which are basically our sense of smell cells. And our sense of smell is so innately linked to our sense of taste that whatever it is that the virus is seeming to target in our smell cells seems to be having this rather unique symptom. I'm I'm asked often, how are we going to tell the difference between flu and COVID-19? How are we going to tell the difference between other winter respiratory viruses and COVID-19? And my short answer is we're not. (laughs) There is so much overlap in the symptoms of influenza and COVID-19 that it will be nearly impossible to distinguish the two based on symptoms alone, with the exception of someone maybe having lost their sense of taste or smell, which seems pretty unique to COVID-19. Do you expect that we're going to get some good news about treatments or vaccines over the course of the next six months? Or should we be digging in and assume that we just have to get used to this for a while? I think we will be getting good news. I don't know that I would assume that in that time frame, it's going to be associated with a confidence that we can lighten up on what we're already doing. But I think we will get good news. 
I think the best part of the vaccine landscape is that there are over 200 vaccine candidates in development, over half a dozen of which have already advanced into phase three trials. And so the best vaccine outcome, and I think even the vaccine makers would say this, the best vaccine outcome is that there are multiple COVID-19 vaccines that are shown to be safe and effective. And therefore, you could move several into populations and get our world vaccinated more quickly than if there was just a single contender that came out on top for example, or that showed to be safe and effective. That's the silver lining in many ways, right? That the global nature of this means that we're so many resources are being mobilized and being brought to bear in this this disease. It's not a, an orphan illness. It's something that affects every country, every person. That I think is very encouraging. And do you expect countries to export their vaccines to other countries in that event or just pass on the technology and the biochemical solutions that led to that vaccine? I think a lot of those discussions have already even happened in terms of how the vaccine development got funded. So a lot of the funding that was offered to support development of these vaccines was contingent upon access in different populations in different nations. So I think a, a lot of the ways in which the vaccines will be distributed by the different vaccine makers is already baked into the cake. And economic forces for free economies, uh, I think, pushed in that direction as well, right? I mean, it's better for the economy, it's better for that corporation to sell it to multiple countries. Why would they limit it? So I think in that regard, uh, economics actually work in, in everybody's favor. So as we wrap up, I just want to ask you one question about Harvard and how you teach there. What will be permanently changed in the way you communicate and what you communicate to your students from this experience with COVID-19? I think personally for me, as an infectious diseases physician, but I think most physicians in general in all fields would say this right now, is that there has never been in my lifetime as humbling a public health event, a public health crisis as COVID-19. I think of the times in March when we were watching this sort of march its way from China. I think I personally still had some sense that we were going to fare okay, that we would certainly see this virus come our way we would see it start to circulate in the United States, but that we would be able to keep it from becoming as unbelievably rampant as it has become. And I think that I never could have expected in so many people, I think in infectious diseases and in medicine in general, never could have expected just how unbelievably destructive this pandemic could have been. So you may inject humility into your teachings at Harvard going forward. I think that this pandemic really struck a tone of just how much we don't have control over things that happen naturally. And even when they're infectious, it's really been astonishing. Dr. Kristen Moffat, thank you for joining us today. We want to thank Dr. Stephen Tabak, Dr. Kristen Moffat. And we want to thank J.P. Morgan Private Bank for introducing us to today's guest, as well as last week's Dr. George Rutherford. So thanks, JP. This is Medicine We're Still Practicing, and it's produced by A.J. Mosley. Music for We're Still Practicing is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please send this episode to your friends and have a socially distant Zoom cocktail with them and chat about it. And of course, don't forget to leave us a review. Catch you next time on Medicine We're Still Practicing. Bye-bye, everybody. Doctor, doctor. 
from Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.